Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 174 of the Meet the Farmers podcast with me, Ben Eagle. Now, my guest today in reality needs very, very little introduction, as she is probably one of, if not the most, recognised farmers in the UK, having appeared on most of the main TV channels in series like The Dales and Our Yorkshire Farm, which has become one of Channel 5's most popular programmes, attracting over 3 million viewers. Yes, I am thrilled today to have Amanda Owen with me. Um, Amanda grew up in Huddersfield, but was inspired largely by the James Herriot books, amongst others, to follow a farming life. Um, she would eventually settle at Ravenseat in Swaledale in the Yorkshire Dales. But before that, she worked on all sorts of farms as a freelance shepherdess, a relief milker, and even for a time, an alpaca shearer. And you don't get many of those. In fact, if there are any alpaca shearers listening, please do get in touch because I would love to hear from you. <laughs> she writes about those early experiences of farming in her first book, The Yorkshire Shepherdess. And I, mean, I absolutely love the way that she tells those stories because um, anyone, and I include myself here, who has worked on different farms with different ways of doing things will be able to relate to much of what she writes about there. Um, different farmers definitely have different views on how they want things done. Um, Raven Seat, the farm that she calls home, is a 2,000-acre hill farm right at the top of Swaledale um, with around 800 Swaledale ewes and 30 head of cattle. Um, Amanda also has nine children to look after between the ages of five and 21, as well as her television career. She's written five books, including the book that we're going to talk about today, celebrating the seasons of which the new paperback version has just come out. Amanda, welcome to Meet the Farmers. Thanks for coming on. Um, how's your week going? How, how are things? Well, it's been quite varied. I mean, uh, I feel like sometimes I've got um, a welly clad foot in two different worlds. I mean, basically, yeah. I've, I've literally, I've just come in from washing sheep. We've got um, a You're soaked as well. <laughs> I'm absolutely soaked. Literally, I've just hung my trousers up in front of the fire. So I'm so glad that you can only see the top half of me because I've got a pair of shorts on at the moment. So, yeah, we have um, a pair of steaming leggings hanging up there. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, things are busy. Things are busy at the moment, you know, and I'm sort of always dodging about between doing this and that. So today, washing sheep. Yesterday, I was actually at a literature festival on Guernsey talking about washing sheep. (laughs) It's a a varied split, should we say. Yeah. And as as I'm sure we'll talk about later on, it's it's part of the, the it's the part of the variety of life and it's part of the variety of farming life as well, with some other things that a lot of that you did, a lot of farmers, other farmers might not do. But I want to start with books, um, because and and you're probably gonna get embarrassed when I say this, but you are I think you are a fabulously <laughs> engaging writer. And actually I recently I've just been I went in I was in Amsterdam last week and I went on the ferry for the first time from Harwich to the Hook, which took mm. forever. But when I was doing that, I I reread uh, your first book. Um yeah. and and as I mentioned, I really enjoyed those sort of early farming experiences that you mentioned in that. But what did books mean to you growing up? Um, and what do they mean to you now? Mm-hmm. Have you always been a reader, and, and what do you enjoy reading? I, I was always a, I was always a reader. I was never, as a child, particularly academic, not at all. I was the kid who stared out of the window. I was always the daydreamer. I was the child that nobody ever remembered at school because I was never particularly good, but I was never particularly bad. I was just kind of invisible. Yeah, I just kept my head down. 
and sort of daydreamed. And then, of course, you can't keep daydreaming because at some point when you're somewhere in a region about 14 or 15, a careers advisor comes along and says, you know, hey, Amanda, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? Yeah. And yeah. that's that's the, the wake-up call. And you're like, well, I don't know. What do I actually like doing? What do I enjoy? Well, I enjoyed reading. And, of course, the James Herriot books, which had been absolutely huge you know, in, the, in the 80s. I'd read those. I'd also watched the television series of Creatures Great and Small. And all I could think of to suggest to my careers advisor was, I said, look, I'd really like to be a, a vet, a countryside vet. Well, I mean, that was pie in the sky. He absolutely was. Because, I mean, obviously, anybody, any child that wants to become a vet has to be pretty academic. You know, you need, you're looking at oh, yes. straight A's uh, uh, and all the rest of it. So he was, you know, he was very matter of fact, was my careers advisor. And he okay. said, look, said, Amanda, no, you're not. <laughs> you haven't got the right credentials for that. You need to go away and think again. So I didn't entirely give up, but I went back to the bookshelves because that was that was sort of that was where I went. I hung about in the library. I was a school librarian. I just I just was a reader, but I was always reading. It was always I always had a focus, I suppose, on, on nonfiction. I liked sort of okay. factual kind of stuff. And the, and the Harriets for me were kind of a bit of a I, I suppose you'd have to say a bit of fiction mixed with nonfiction. But to me, they were absolutely real. It was about the characters of people. So went back to the bookshelves, found myself another book. I'm looking on my shelf now because I've got a copy okay. of it. Okay, have you still got it? It, was, it? Yeah, of course I have. Oh, great. It's, it's there somewhere. There's all kinds of epic terms on there. It was called Hill Shepherd. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't exactly a sequel that was about, but it was um, a coffee table style book. So it's full of photographs. And these were these were very sort of, they were very graphic photographs shepherds going about the business it was called hill shepherds so it was following the lives of shepherds in the dales and in the lake district and these pictures i mean they were so they were so gritty i mean it just showed the blood the mud everything and for me picking that book up as a child living a relatively suburban sort of life i couldn't believe that that was still well still going on really yeah. i was in yorkshire was the crow flies probably you know it was only it was only a life that was going on a hundred hundred miles away from where i was living yeah but it could have been a different planet and you know where i actually lived although it was very urban the draw that i always had was i loved going on my bicycle out onto the moors and the sort of the the open areas so when I got that book, it was kind of like um, it's kind of like something being switched on in my head, and I thought, you know what, being a shepherd is a thing. I could be a shepherd. Maybe that would sort of tick all the boxes for what I felt like I wanted to do. I felt like I wanted to work outside. I felt like I wanted to work with animals. That sounds so so sort of fashionable. You know, I want to work with animals. So many yeah. people say that, but it was farming exactly. And- and for me to say I want to be a farmer was just that was pie in the sky. So for me to be a shepherd sort of ticked all the right boxes. And I think now, probably in hindsight, I was probably rebelling as well. I was probably trying to sort of upset everybody by trying to do something different as you do when you're a teenager. Yeah, this is going a little bit off. But do you speak to young people, kids from urban areas? Do you come across anyone who sort of has that dream that you saw yeah. in yourself when you were a kid? A lot. Maybe it's spoken about even more than it. it it was in my day. In my day, I feel like, I mean, some things have never, I haven't changed in the, the tried and tested way 
to supposedly get anywhere is, of course, sort of college, university, all the rest of it. And I would hope that there might be a bit of a sort of awakening that that isn't the route for all children and it isn't always the route to success. Yeah. So when I talk to kids now and literally at Guernsey yesterday at the Literature Festival, there was a procession of children there. So I'm wearing the jumpers with the tractors on and there was a yeah. lad there who had a couple of pigs and there was another lad who was working part-time on one of the three dairy farms they had on Guernsey. Okay. There's, there are a lot of children out there who are very enthusiastic they have seen television programs about the countryside. You know, they've they've seen seen it through social media and have decided that they want to work land. And I will encourage them every step of the way because no matter what the political climate, mm. no matter mm. what sort of fads and fashions come and go, there is one thing that is never going to fall out of fashion, and that is feeding people. It might change, ideas might change, but the, the bottom line is... The, the countryside, nature and food on the plate is always going to be relevant. It can't not be. So yeah. why not encourage a younger generation? Absolutely. Yeah. Just going back to books again a bit. Did you um, did you write at all when you were younger? And, and did you ever imagine that you'd you'd end up writing five books and, and who knows, maybe more in the future? No, I, I got an E in English at GCSE level. You know, Wuthering Heights, sort of cider with Rosie, all that kind of stuff. It just wasn't for me. I wasn't interested. Yeah. And through my kids now, I see exactly the same. My oldest is 21. She's just got a first in biomedicine. She's very academic. She's very, very studious. That's what she loves. Ruben, he's 18. He would not tolerate any sort of academia. He hated going to school. He was a good boy. Don't get me wrong, but he just hated school. He didn't want to learn about geography. He didn't want to learn yeah. about history. All he wanted to do was work with machinery and engines. That's how he's wired. That's how his brain is. Okay. But you know okay. what? He's away working today. He works every hour that there is. And he is busy because he's astute. He's clever. He's smart. He's got a business brain. But he isn't going to the university. He's going to the university of life. But the, the point being, for a child like Ruben, it's very different, difficult to rail against the system. Yep. If you yep. If you live rural... You have options, you know, with, with Ruben, I always think that if he'd have lived my life when he got to 14, he probably would have bunked off. He probably wouldn't have gone to school because he'd have found other things to distract him. Because he lives rurally, he has to be on the school bus. He had to go into school every day. There was no, you know, school's nearly 30 miles away. So there was no way he could dodge that one. But also, if you live on a farm, if you live rurally, there, there are ways that you can be creative. You can get cars. You can work on engines, you can work with machinery, you can be out in the fields, you can do things. If you're a child, if you're a child who who lives in a city, you don't have that. You don't have that privilege. So it's it is really difficult. I've never sort of been one to sort of stand on a soapbox and say, This is how you should parent, this is how you should bring kids up. Because actually, like I say, we're fortunate that we have this. So I just feel like it needs to be a bit of a change in mindset in the whole education system and the kind of sort of how we want kids to be we have to always be looking to the next generation and and be able to give them that ability to be creative and and go their own way i suppose oh that's such a great point made um mm-hmm. tell us about your most recent book celebrating the seasons because mm-hmm. in essence it, it's part recipe book part memoir and it includes a lot of your own photography as well um Absolutely. why did you want to write 
this particular book um and how did you find the experience of putting it together i always love love asking writers that question <laughs> mm. putting, putting books together for me is just like it's so difficult yeah. because I'm, all, I'm always distracted always because this and this is this is the element that is really difficult in order to have material to write about you can't stop doing it there are only a certain number of hours in a day so you have to spread yourself incredibly thinly I'm very aware that ridiculous as it might sound and unfair as it absolutely is there is more money to be made talking about shoveling the proverbial than actually shoveling it yeah and please do not think that I think that that is that is a good thing because it absolutely isn't. Mm, but yeah. as as somebody on that's a hill farm, yeah, that's the reality. As somebody on a hill farm with nine children, you know, you have to obviously if you if you go back to the bare bones of it, you have to look at how how you sort of future proof things. How do you make it work? Yeah. Now the problem is, it's okay writing about it, but you do have to keep doing it. So mm. that is why I literally lurch from one extreme to the other but it's that challenge of doing that 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 I enjoy but putting together a book what you talked about with the photography yeah obviously I don't have time to write a diary to remind me of things obviously but what I do have is a phone in my pocket that nobody ever rings because there's no signal here. So that's yeah. good. That's oh, that must be beautiful. Perfect. <laughs> but, I, but I take pictures. It's a visual diary. Yeah. I think at the moment I've got about 130,000 pictures in the back catalogue. Wow. So that is everything. I mean, this morning it's pictures of us washing the, the gimmers and shifting them across the bridge. It's, it's literally, it's little pointers. I can look back at those pictures and it can take me through whatever was happening on any given day, probably for about the last, last decade. Fantastic. And as is always the case with me, I need deadlines. If I sat down and wrote something, I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't send it. I would leave it still until the deadline yep. because I keep changing it. Exactly. So actually what I do is I know myself and I know my sort of, my sort of little funny ways. I just leave it. And yes, that is horrible stress. But that horrible stress may, means that I get one shot at it. That's it. Can't go back into it. Can't change it. Can't alter it. it I press send. It's gone. That's yeah. how it has to be. And it's usually press send about an hour before there is someone absolutely threatening me. Yeah. Because because um, that's just that's just how I am. I've just got a thousand distractions, right? <laughs> exactly. We all have to mm. learn how how it, we all work. Um, you mentioned Hill Shepherd before John John Liza Ford's mm. book, um, mm. which was in essence written as a lasting tribute to a very traditional way of life, and and this book as well, celebrating the seasons. It's also a celebration of that in yeah. many ways. Um, do you think that that's partly why? And I was when I was putting these questions together, I was thinking about the word this one is why people are so fascinated by your story and, and your story there representing uh, representing a story that lots of hill farmers all over all over the country live. But yeah. is there a fascination with that? Yeah, absolutely there is. Maybe, maybe a newfound fascination. I used to think that the people who watched the programs or read the books, I used to think it was all a nostalgia for times okay. past, for times gone. Yeah. yeah. You know, people recalling their own childhoods, where they were brought up. I feel like maybe, maybe we're getting into the area of being two generations from people working the land. 
possibly possibly we're about that stage it makes me feel very old <laughs> but people still had that connection whereby they remembered you know their their grandparents maybe farming small holding m- more of a subsistence style farming more of a connection with with naturally the harvest and and what the land could provide we certainly have moved a, away from that but now and i think particularly after the pandemic I'm hoping these lessons are are sort of retained, actually, and people don't go back to forgetting, forgetting about what the countryside can provide from us and what it can give to us. But Mm. when when we had two years of utter chaos, that was people being trapped in their own house with no access to the outside, the great outdoors, when we had people heading into the supermarkets because there was panic buying, food shortages. Yeah. I thought to myself, maybe this is a reset because, of course, also people were picking up skills that they thought they'd forgotten. Everybody was bread making. Everybody was baking cakes. Everybody was sort of taking a step back. All those skills, everyone was like, oh, you know, youngins these days, they can't cook, they can't bake, they can't do this. Oh, they could. Of course they could. It's just life didn't allow it because we were Mm. so busy. I just hope that we don't sort of slip, slip back into our old ways. And I feel like the crisis that we're going through at the moment, I don't know, life's difficult. And I think for, for a younger generation, you know, obviously we all have to pay the bills, but I think there was a time that we went through, particularly post COVID, that a lot of the fan base were people who literally wanted to change the life. They wanted to take yeah. the emphasis away from the rat race. And they wanted to look at living close to the land and letting their kids experience the fresh air and all the rest of it whether whether life at the moment allows for that it's another thing i think it's super because of course, because of course you know we're going through um a big crisis at the moment no one could ever have anticipated but i guess the thing the thing that that it's taught me i suppose is that you can't ever sort of rest on your laurels you can't ever sit there and think well i've got it made you know sorted i know what i'm doing for what 10 15 years the emphasis on farming and farmers has always been stop farming diversify quit farming well not quit farming but let the farming sort of be in the background yeah yeah you've got your farming but then you've actually got your business where you're going to make your money on whatever that is yeah exactly you know let's diversify get yourself a campsite look after tourism campsites farm shop and it's fine because you've got loads of time to do all that you can can get all that done yeah absolutely but (laughs) farmers are incredibly farmers by nature can turn the hand to so many things that is the nature of farming you have to be a bit of a plumber a bit of an electrician a bit of this a bit of that a bit of a builder yeah you name it so we implement these things in fact maybe maybe our problem has been that we are almost too good at Mm -hmm. sort of wearing different clothes and we would have been better just saying you know what we're farmers that's what we're good at we're going to keep putting food on plates anyway we you know we sort of take the nod it's not particularly about about food production what are we 60 percent self-sufficient apparently that was good enough yeah but anybody who'd thrown all their sort of everything that they had into tourism was completely snookered when covid came because that was the end of that. And what was everybody wanting during COVID? They were back to the shelves. Were they wanting tofu? No. Were they wanting end of mommy beans? No. What did they want? 
You couldn't buy sausages. You couldn't buy chicken, eggs, yeast, flour. It was like, come on, guys, get your fingers out. We need you farming again. Yeah, we need we need you to be super productive. Forget tourism. Everyone's at home. You can't. You're not making any money that way. So that was kind of the wake up call of saying, well, you know what? Actually, anybody who sort of was doing a bit of this and a bit of that could ride out the storm. It's about, I think, striking a balance and sort of not actually fully committing on everything. It's kind of like just literally sort of we do a bit of tourism. We do a bit of a, a bit of media. Yeah, we do yeah. farming. We do we do we do we do all that. Yeah, we do yeah. the environment. We do we do the flowers. We do the birds. Yeah, and that's the only way that you can can work it. Yeah, because and you've got, got twenty four hours in every day. Oh, and... It's so volatile. It's yeah. so volatile. I mean, you you uh, you once used to think twenty five years ago. I used to stand on the hill end at Raven Seat and think, hmm. I am so far away from everybody and everything. I can lose myself here. I'm very um, insignificant. What goes on in the world don't matter to me. Poof. Are you kidding? It's it's crazy. Connection is great. Being able to be sort of connected to the world via the internet, getting the internet into the into the farm has obviously impacted hugely in in what we can do. You know, I could never have done the books, never have done the writing. You know, a lot of business now is conducted um, via the internet. Mm-hmm. So that is that is wonderful. But the world has certainly certainly got smaller, and farming certainly at the moment. There's a lot of farmers out there who who are looking for clarity, and I don't I don't think we're ever really going to get it because because government policy just turns on a sixpence. Yeah. What, what we are told one week can vary hugely to another way. And how, how can you plan for that? Yeah. So difficult. Yeah. Tell us about Swaledales um, and, and what make them so distinctive, because I don't think we've talked about them on the podcast before. Mm-hmm. Swaledales. Well, I mean, it's 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 all anyone can speak about at the moment. We're coming up to that time. Swaledale mania as yeah. hit Swaledale. I mean, obviously <laughs> Swaledales are from Swaledale. It's, it's where they belong. It's where they've always been. It's where the sort of breed was born. Yes, I've washed 39 of them this morning and also (laughs) plucked around the eyes to try and make them um, look more beautiful. But I don't know whether there's going to be any trade on Saturday. You know, um, around here, it's all about breeding pure. They're huffed flocks and the Swaledale is perfectly at home here. It's a hardy sheep. It's a very natural sheep. You know, we don't dock them. They're a horned breed. They're, yeah, there is no other sheep around here. If you go to a sheep show around here, I'm afraid there's not going to be an any other breed class. It's it's Swaledales. And people yeah. say, well, yeah. how how can that how can that even be? Go to Tanhill Show, go to Muka Show, and literally it will take from 10 o'clock in the morning till five o'clock in the evening to go through all the classes, which are generally one Swaledale Yow, two Swaledale Yows, one local Yow, one large breed of Yow, one small Yow, pair of gimmers, tups. Oh, you name it. There is every single class. But of course, tomorrow the sale we have is shot gimmers. So that's female female lambs that people will buy as breeders and replacements. I don't know whether there's going to be a trade or not. We're late in. Um, and then, of course, we've got the tup sales. We're closed flocks. 
So a lot of the flocks around here, the only blood they will buy in will be a tup at the tup sales. Yeah. So it's yeah. critically important that you buy well, because if you buy badly, obviously that will impact you down the line for many years to come. So there'll be some big money. There'll be some lal money. Average price of a tup will probably end up being something like £300. Some of them will make crazy money. Some of them will make um, a lot less. But it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a gamble. And, you know, the, the sheep come with the farms around here. Yeah, you know, I, say, I, mean, I mean, on that, in terms of breeding lines, mm-hmm. how how are you impacted by foot and mouth going back a bit? And, no, um, was, and, was, and, and how long like, did that take to, to sort of work uh, back again? We thought it took maybe a decade to get back to where you felt yeah. that you were in the same seam pedigree-wise. Because, of course, the problem with foot and mouth was not just the fact that it, it that i mean we we survived we lost a third of our flock but the problem was the knock on effect mm. was that you kept sheep that perhaps in normal years you wouldn't have kept Absolutely. Sheep. Mm. so actually it sort of diluted the quality so it took a long time to get back from that i mean we were lucky we only lost a third some places lost everything so so yeah though there were bad times I mean, it was 20 years ago mm. and i suppose yeah, it was like 20 years ago I know. Well, COVID was COVID was a little bit of a reminder, really. Yeah. I mean, I know it was very different because, of course, COVID was people and the pandemic, whereas foot and mouth was something that maybe only the countryside felt to that degree. But once, you know, you had that sort of feeling of isolation upon isolation, mm-hmm. it brought all that back. There were horrendous times. Changed the face of farming. Certainly dumped us, dumped us with a load of paperwork, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. And there was, wasn't it, there was still, a, there was an early stage within foot and mouth where there was, in the same way, early stages of COVID, where there was that fear, that massive fear factor that you don't know how this is spreading or how it's getting anywhere. No, I mean, that was it. And there was a, you know, as with all these things, you listen to the jungle drums and gossip as to how it was going on. Nobody, nobody sort of really understood it. And that is exactly the same as what happened with COVID, you know, it was, it was terrifying. You always feel, you know, people would say you're incredibly lucky to be where, where you are. And we were, you know, we weren't sort of, we weren't imprisoned in a sort of a semi in the middle, middle of town. We had space around us, but still it was, well, just, just the, just the thought of how it would be trying to homeschool nine kids at home. (laughs) (laughs) Nine, nine school and nine kids at home supposedly whilst also trying to do everything that he's doing on a farm it was so difficult and of course it took away it took away it's actually honestly about it. it's it's beyond that it's just like unbelievable for most people it's like i, I don't know how you did it well who says i did do it uh, my, my, <laughs> my lessons took on a whole different kind of um we were on a different syllabus put it that way yeah the kids got rather better at cooking they got a heck of a lot lot better uh, lambing and changing wheels and all kinds of things. Everything had more of a practical element. Yeah, there was less. There was less logging on. Put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, dogs. Let's talk a little about dogs. Uh, how how many dogs? Have you, I'm just going to stoke my fire up so I don't go out. Oh yeah, no, of course. Yeah, okay. don't let that happen. No, I don't want it to to go out. Um, So what, dogs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about dogs. Um, So how many dogs have you kept over the years and and have you had any particular Uh, favourites to work with? I know it's always difficult going back to to old dogs. It is really difficult. Um, At the moment, we have got, we've got three sheep dogs at the moment. We've got Kate, 
Midge and Nell. So we could probably, do, I keep saying I could do with another dog, but getting around to it, finding the right one's another thing. Sometimes yeah. dogs find you rather than the other way around. Yeah, that's people often um, say that. Mm, uh, over the years, I've had various dogs. I've had the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, <laughs> which one's stick in my mind? I suppose my first sheepdog. My first, your first sheepdog always does stick in your mind. I think for everybody, because it's that first sort of, I don't know, it's that first connection that you make with a sheepdog. You know, with a sheep, I know people yeah. have pet dogs, and I know there's a certain amount of, of of affection, even with a working dog. I can't explain it, but yeah. that sense of reliance and the way that you do work together, although perhaps you don't have the same outward affection. With the sheepdog, people say, "Oh, but it lives in a kennel. How can you let it live in a kennel? Because it's a sheepdog, and he likes yeah, exactly. it." Okay, they've got a different way with them, haven't they? Sheepdogs, yeah. you know, they 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 don't look for that pat on the head in the same way. It's that tone of your voice. It's 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 far more subtle. It's far more far more subtle. My first dog was called Difa. That's the yeah. stupidest dog name ever. But because I didn't know what I was doing, I always yeah. felt that Difa ran for me just out of pity. Right? She, she was. <laughs> She did, honestly, because, I mean, she was out of a, a working bit of collie litter, um, but she was kind of like the one that didn't match. I think she had terrier in her personally, but there you go. Yeah. Is, it, is this when, you, when you're up in Cumbria? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, got, I got her as a pup and she was so loyal. I mean, she just, she was just always there at my side, but she wouldn't run. And the day that she ran for the first time, I was actually coming down, um, coming down a, a pasta it was lowing time it was piddling down with rain coming down his pasta there was a really belligerent yow kept turning back it was just i was like oh come on because this dog was just healing me and it just would never you know i was running backwards and forwards and she wasn't doing anything and at that moment she actually set off and it was almost like it was almost like something clicked in her head yeah, but i yeah. still think it wasn't natural ability it was more kind of a do you know what it's time i actually sort of helped her out a bit and that was the beginning of a, a, an excellent relationship she didn't look so much like a sheepdog she for a start she was white the yows had a problem because they thought that she was a lamb so they would turn turn tail on her um and, and that would create issues but she was i could do anything with that dog she could catch lambs for me she could do every single move that would get you disqualified on one man and his dog all the things <laughs> all the things that that a real a real work dog i can't explain maybe people who are listening will understand what i mean mm. there's a vast difference between a trial dog a trial dog is very clever believe me one of the trial dogs that i had later on i bought and was quite a bit of money and when i actually brought it back to farm i realized that literally the dog it was so difficult to get a not to follow the wall because where i send a dog they're in a wall if you send it on an outrun and it's looking for a wall, it, there isn't one. It's just going to keep running. You see what I mean? And, it, and I realised that this dog had been trained to gather sheep within a wall, within 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 a field. Yeah. So if you take a dog like that to the moor and sort of send it away, it ain't well, it's going to keep work. going. Yeah, it's just, it's it's just going. never going to come back. Yeah, exactly. And and I mean that same dog, it wouldn't go across a river. It's like river. What what's that? I can't, you know, when you're in the field working with the dog and it, it takes time, a relationship takes time. And the sad thing is with a work dog, 
you know that they go through a stage it's a bit like Nelly now she's just young and she's full of enthusiasm and get-go and you know she doesn't she doesn't have any breaks she's just like mm-hmm. now Kate she's she's old she's got nows yeah but she hasn't got the speed yeah. work them together and we're all right but the dog gets old on you the, by the time the dog knows what you want to do before you even tell it you realize that actually you need to be thinking about getting another dog i hate that so bad let's talk about the other part of your life now so let's do it on to because yeah you've said you've just been um just been down to the channel islands um mm-hmm. do you enjoy the public speaking part of your life because i mean you do a lot of it and if i mean, i just looked at your speaking calendar for for november and well do you want to know what you've got coming up you're going to cardiff uh-huh. yeovil south end folkestone and carlisle nice little tour i'm going um, to i think i'm going to scarborough tomorrow in rory bremner seriously so that so that this is part of my question it's like sort of have you always been sort of a people person? Do you enjoy meeting lots of different people, or how, how do you find that? No, I was an antisocial git. <laughs> That's why I became a shepherd. If I was a real people person, I would never have chosen to do that, would I? Well, exactly. This is this is sort of what I'm thinking. I was tramping around the Lake District, and you know, my other friends—they were all off doing their own thing, and there's me wandering around in wellies. So no, I never. I feel like I've lived my life in reverse. Yeah, I really do feel like that because I went off um, to do what I wanted. I was really fortunate that I managed to kind of find myself where I wanted to be and sort of worked my way up the ladder. And then literally everything that's happened regarding the media has all been totally and utterly accidental. There never was a plan. There couldn't mm-hmm. ever have been a plan. Exactly. How I mean, you, you can't, you can't plan for that. Exactly. No. It all began with literally um, people coming through on the coast-to-coast walk, the ramblers, and striking up a conversation, and people had questions. They would ask things. They would want to know about the farm. They'd want to know about the animals. They'd want to know about the landscape, everything. And I would chat to them for a good five minutes, and then they'd head off on the way again. And every summer, that would happen. Off the back of that, one of the people you spoke to, of course, was a researcher for a TV programme, The Dales. Um, and it was like, you know, would you like to be part of this sort of little series? It's like, okay, you know, it's not a paid for gig or anything like that. But I thought, well, it's advertising. It'll get yeah. me more people come to Matt's, come for afternoon teas. Did that, got approached by a literary agent, asked if I wanted to write, thought to myself, what have I got to lose? I've always been a bit of a chancer. I think it's because yeah. like, <laughs> Well, you know, I was like, well, um, I, I, don't, I don't know. I said, I'm a reader. I'm not a writer, you know. Um, what have I got to lose? What have I got to lose? The only thing that could happen is, wow. is, is you fail, right? It's not death, is it? You just look like an idiot. It doesn't matter, does it? We all do that. We're all learning. So um, I wrote my book. Got the, to number the, three. The rest is history, as they say. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. that was, so that was the start of that. And I think the, the sort of the key to that one is if you find that thing that you sort of love and enjoy then then everything else sort of naturally came after so yeah you know, you, you know what i think that is for, for any for any younger listeners listening i think that is that in itself is just a super point just to just to sort of sit on there um mm. is that just do what you love and it'll be yeah do what you love yeah do what you love and i i spend a, i spend a lot of time encouraging kids 
and parents as well. And I think there has, I, I do believe that there has been a bit of a turnaround with maybe, maybe again, the pandemic, looking at how we need, we need a younger generation that, that sort of are given the opportunity to do things, to be practical. There is nothing wrong with sort of working your way up the ladder. You have to adapt, right? You're not, nobody is the same person that they were when they were 18, 19, 20. So in other words, yeah, you're going to do some rubbish jobs that maybe you hate. But the fact is, as long as you do them and know that you hate them, that is that is what spurs you on to bigger, bigger, better things. That's life. And my life has gone the opposite way around. So the fact is, I'm talking about what I love, what I'm passionate about, and what I know about. And when I walk into somewhere... And I'm nervous because I get nervous every time I have to see you. When I walk into somewhere and I'm really nervous, I think to myself, why am I nervous? And I think to myself, I'm going on there to talk about what I know about. Mm-hmm. I have nothing to be nervous about. So I like to go and not be stereotypically what they expect of me. I set off doing little WIs, bits and pieces, whereby I would go and talk to a group of ladies and get some custard creams and, and um, a ham salad. That was the payment. That's what I would do. And I quickly realised that when I went to these places, I would stand, you'd get tidied up. You wouldn't go in your wellies and stuff. You go, you get tidied up and you stand in front of them and say, ah, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name's Amanda and I'm a shepherd. And they'd look and go, hang on, but you don't look like one. Because unfortunately, that's a bit of a preconception. So then I thought to myself, right, well, what I need to do is make sure that people can see the other side, because in a way it was kind of saying you can be this, but you can be that too. You can be uh, a farmer, but you can also do public speaking. You can. It's again, it's that fact that farmers are very good at adapting. Exactly. Be and do whatever they are. And I was absolutely I was damned if I was going to go to a talk with my sheepdog and my crook in my hand in a pair of wellies, just so I looked like I knew what I was on about. Mm. There is this little term and it is, what is it now? Hang on. All the gear, no idea. Right. So the fact of the matter is I can stand there in a pair of stilettos with a massive pair of diamond earrings and even a white dress if I so choose it. But if anyone wants to talk to me about contagious ovine dermatitis, the grading system, what trade is at the moment with cattle, sheep, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, I can bore the pants off them. <laughs> so, so, you know, I can go to a talk, I can do Cheltenham Literature Festival where, where I know very well when I walk in that room, their emphasis is going to be countryside, environment, sort of the bigger picture. But I've also been, and I've done a talk for, for I think it was like the Craven, Craven Hill Farming Society, and that was at Skipton. And I was like, what am I doing here? I'm talking to the already converted. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to teach these guys anything. But you know what? The fact that I can go there and I can do that, it's good. Can you imagine a world Absolutely. where people talk about and wrote about only things that they actually knew about? Wouldn't it be great? So, yeah, again, as someone who talks to a lot of different people, you were saying you're in lots of different audiences. I'm really mm-hmm. interested in your view on that big question, which we always talk about, on how farming is perceived by the public, in inverted commas. Um, mm-hmm. It's something we talk about a lot as an industry. Um, mm-hmm. But how do you think that farmers are really perceived? 
At the moment, we're vilified. At the moment, we are the root of all evil. You can take your two holidays a year, jump off, go to Torremolinos, go right the way around the world, but then you can point your finger at a farmer who's got a cow that farts. I think there's quite a lot of nimbyism, not in my backyard. We want to see, we want to see beautiful countryside. Yeah. But that beautiful countryside does not happen just by itself. If you look at the effort that goes into literally just on, on this farm, if you look at the effort that goes into keeping the walls up, planting trees, yeah. we farm in a way that that suits where we are. Each farm is individual. And we get we at every point, we get at every turn, we get the finger pointed at us. This is your fault. This is your fault. Nothing can happen quick. Nothing can happen quick. But also farming is such a broad church that one farm naturally can produce better results for the environment than another farm that can naturally produce more food for your plate. Mm. That's how it is. But I think at the moment, farmers are just, they're just ducking their head down. Yeah, They're ducking their head down. They feel like everything has been laid at their door. Climate change pollution, vegan activism, everything. All, what, 2% of the population's fault? I feel like we have been, to a certain degree, thrown under the bus Mm -hmm. as the people people to blame. Like I said right at the beginning, clarity is what we need. What do people want us to do? Yeah, yeah. I'm lucky. I'm fortunate because this farm ticks loads of boxes. Okay, it ticks loads of boxes because number one, it's beautiful. It's got lots of wildflowers. It's got lots of wild birds. It's got triple SSSIs. All the rest of it, and of course, we're supported to farm in that way. But what quite happens as the support is taken away mm. is another thing. Yeah. Because then it morally falls onto your shoulders. People say, well, morally, it wouldn't be right to come to Raven Sea and throw lots of fertilizer about and try and farm it really hard. No, of course it wouldn't. But if people don't, if people don't want to support us to provide the food, farming in the way that we do, then what are we supposed to do? The bottom line is we don't own the farm. We're tenants. Exactly. So again, that limits you. I'm also in a national yeah. park, which is great. It brings tourists, but we are working that view. If you go to Alton Towers, you pay to go in and you come away from it having had either a brilliant day or, or or whatever. You can come to our farm, park your car, head off for a walk through the countryside, look at the views, take lots of pictures, have a picnic, paddle in the stream, do all that, and never dip your hand in your pocket. Yeah, you don't have to spend hmm. a penny. And no, not a penny. And I'm not, I'm not going to start putting a charge to come to the farm box because i'm so proud of what we have and what we do but that is why people have to look about people saying oh taxpayer funded look at all them subsidies they're getting off the government look at what they're getting back it's a bargain okay get us out of raven sea forget it stop farming it let's get first of all let's get some heritage experts come and put all the slates back on the roof and keep all the dry stone walls up then we can get some guy to come and plant all the trees. Then we can get also the botanist, the environment. Do you know what? I think by the time you'd got all the sort of people in to do the same job that we do, I think you'd probably find that we were a bargain. Yeah, yeah exactly. It would cost a fortune, wouldn't it? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's such a good way of putting it. 
We always finish the show with the same two questions, which I'm going to ask you now. Yeah. The first is, if you have a question, a, a message for the public, what would it be? Any message? If I had a message for the public, I would say, I would say either don't just take sound bites. Really, really try it and do some fact-finding before you make a judgment. I'd also say to try, try and support British farmers in what they're doing. We have the best farming, highest welfare, and we are such a diverse country. We have everything. You know, we have everything from down in the south and your arable and your chocolates to to the moors, the fells. We have all the native breeds of sheep. Mm. Take some sort of pleasure. Enjoy what we've got and try. And I know it's hard because people are skinned, but try your best to, to, to shop local and, and, to, and to sort of shop savvy, shop smart. I'm not saying to people buy more meat. If anything, I'm saying maybe buy less meat, but better source meat. That's what I'd say. And finally, Amanda Owen, a message for farmers. Don't give up. Do not give up. Don't borrow loads of money. Don't do it. It'll come to a point. It'll come to a point when actually, actually, yes, I understand that we have to be efficient. I understand all that. But at the end of the day, uh, at the end of the day, I will always maintain that people will need you and things will come right. Yeah, you might have to sit tight. You might have to sit tight for a little bit, but look at your farm and look at what it can provide and just, hey, keep plowing on, right? Keep plowing on. Don't throw the towel in. There's so much good stuff. Look at the program, Jeremy Clarkson. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how the message gets out there. Just keep on going. And remember that you do have a lot of support out there. Don't focus on the negative. Don't focus on the haters. You are doing a good job. You're you're feeding people, bottom line. Okay. Keep going because I do believe that we will come through this period. And you know. Eventually, we'll get to a place where where once again we're valued as um, as we should be. Definitely, right, I should shut up now. I feel like that's I'm fine. Good. We'll leave it there. Uh, <laughs> but you. a huge thank you to Amanda you for, uh, for coming on the show. Honestly, it's been an absolute pleasure. My pleasure. Celebrating the seasons with the Yorkshire Shepherdess is out now in paperback uh, for eight ninety nine. Um, if you haven't already please do subscribe to Meet the Farmers um, wherever you're listening. And you could also now join the Meet the Farmers Supporters Club on Patreon. Uh, you can find that at patreon.com forward slash meet the farmers. Next time on the show, we'll be heading across to Cumbria um, to speak to Jim Beery, who farms beef, sheep, pigs, and some arable. And he's also a focus farmer writer for Farmers Guardian. I hope you can join me then. I'm Ben Eagle. This has been Meet the Farmers. Thank you very much for listening, as always. And I hope you all have a great week, guys.